morning, everyone. You notice what I'm wearing this morning? Okay, so last week I didn't get in trouble, but I did have a few comments about why did you pick on the Broncos. I'm a sort of an adopted Broncos fan. Pretty much I'll wear any shirt that you buy me if it's free. So, well, I won't wear a Raider shirt. Can't wear a Raider shirt. Uh, but uh, Broncos stuff, yeah, all the time. Uh, so this is a new series for the month of November. And of course, it's the month of November, so we have to talk about what? Thanksgiving. Who here has never heard a sermon about being thankful? Wow, so everybody already knows it. Wow, that's going to make the next four weeks really, really long. Uh, anyone feel comfortable about coming up and doing one of the sermons you've heard? No? Okay, so I still got a job. No one's taking that from me. Uh, but instead of talking about being thankful, we are going to spin it just a little bit, and we're going to be talking about being thankful. Totally different words. Cue slide. So there is a word called thankful, which usually means telling someone that you're grateful for something they've done. So a little thank you note, uh, just a, a congratulations, a pat on the back, a good job, I appreciate it. So that's kind of what we think of when we use the word thankful. But we're not going to use the word thankful, we're going to use the word thankful. And I know I could have put the word full first and then... And we could say that we are full of thanks, but the play on words was just too good for me to pass up. But we're going to use the word thankful, describing living a life that is full of thanks. And we're not going to be listing a whole bunch of things in these messages about, I should be thankful for this, I should be thankful for this, I should be thankful for this. We're not going to go through lists of things that should motivate us to praise God, worship Him, and live a life of contentment. Instead, we're going to look at the main emphasis behind our relationship with God and how it's established by faith and how that relationship with God in faith gives us a totally different perspective on life around us. Now, in the early 2000s, there was a band called Fountains of Wayne not expecting anyone to know this band, not expecting anyone to know this song, but they wrote a song called Someone to Love. Not to be confused with the song Somebody to Love, it's Someone to Love. And they had a neat music video and it was fun to watch. But the basic premise of that video and that song was two kind of college and career age people who started their life in a major city, uh, <clears throat> New York, uh, had sex, sex, oh, had successful careers. It's important to say the word correctly. They had successful careers. And it shows them getting up in the morning, going through their routine, and just enjoying all the finer things of life. They had all the stuff that they could imagine that they would want to have, but they were lacking something. Even though they had lots of things to be thankful for, they were missing something. And they found each other, and they realized it was a relationship that they had been missing their entire lives. They had all this stuff, but what they really needed was a relationship. And if 
And the, and the whole purpose of the song is if you found the right person, you would have a happy, fulfilled life. The song is partly true, but it's not completely true. It's correct when it says all the careers and all the success and all the stuff won't bring happiness, but it's also not correct when it says a romantic relationship is the key to a happy life. A relationship is the key to a happy life, but not a romantic relationship. And from a Christian perspective, the relationship we're talking about is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That will make a life content, that will make a life happy, that will make a life satisfied when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So you do need a relationship. That is key in all of this, being thankful. But it's not a romantic relationship. It's not a family relationship. It's not partner relationship. It's not business relationships. And it certainly is not stuff. While it's important and necessary, life is not about accumulating stuff. And I think we're going to begin to see this series on being thankful from maybe an unusual place. We're going to look at leprosy. And I, well, I was expecting a bigger reaction than that. <laughs> leprosy! How many of you are thankful you don't have leprosy? Really? My whole family just kind of looked at me like, I have no idea where you're going with this, Dad, but I'm not raising my hand. No one wants leprosy. No one. Um, but leprosy is a 100% curable disease with antibiotics. It's not as terrible as it was in, back in the day before antibiotics. But we're going to look at Luke chapter 17. And in Luke chapter 17, there's a story uh, that Jesus is walking through uh, uh, Jerusalem, on his way to Jerusalem, and he encounters ten individuals who are absolute outcasts of society. Untouchable. And I think in our day and age, we're not dealing with leprosy, we have the COVID virus, but you think of someone who has a COVID virus, how much do you want to hug and touch them? Probably not. You probably want them on the opposite end of the street, on the far side, and you want to say, unclean, unclean, unclean. Well, leprosy was in that day and age a devastating disease where there were no antibiotics or doctors that could solve it. And the Old Testament has lots of regulations when it came to being sick and having a disease that was incurable and infectious at the time. And so Jesus is leaving, living in a culture where there is not scientific medical studies like we have today to help us understand how things happened. In their day and age, they felt if you got sick and died at an early age in particular, it was because you're a sinner. Somehow you sinned against God, and that is God's judgment upon you. Scripture doesn't teach that, but their culture taught that. Their rabbis taught that. And so there was tremendous guilt, tremendous shame, and so those individuals that had leprosy had to isolate themselves in little colonies because no one wanted to deal with them. And it wasn't until the 1800s that we found out exactly what it is and how to treat it, and it has not been a major problem since then outside of a, a few places in, uh, in, in the Middle East and out in that area. But it's curable. But when Jesus faced this crowd of ten lepers, there was no medical knowledge. There was no treatment. 
It was a death sentence every single time. So in Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11, we pick up the story and the scenario. It says in verse 11, Luke is writing this, Now on his way to Jerusalem, that's Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Probably, we've heard those words before, right? Samaria and Galilee. Galilee is kind of where Jesus grew up, Nazareth and Galilee, that area. But Samaria was that outcast tribe of Israel that was not very Jewish. They had Jewish history and ancestry, yes, but they were kind of pushed out of the inclusion of Israel because they were on the other side of the Jordan River. And so they were excluded. They were physically related to the Israelites, but culturally they were excluded and they were considered just like a Gentile. They had no special treatment before God in the view of Israel and uh, they weren't allowed in the temple. They couldn't serve. Uh, they couldn't even do trade in, in Israel. And so they were outcasts. And you see that in Jesus' parable about the Good Samaritan, how someone who was an outcast helped someone who was injured while the rest of the Israelites just walked past that injured person. So we already know a little bit something about Samaria. So he's kind of on that border, walking to Jerusalem between these two areas, Galilee and Samaria. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him they stood at a distance. That was what was required. But somehow the word had gotten to these lepers that Jesus was coming. And in their mind, Jesus meant one thing. What did it mean? He's going he's to heal me. Because we have heard nothing but healing, the resurrection of the dead, walking on water, feeding thousands and thousands of people, confusing the scholars and teaching them he's a miracle worker. Maybe he can work a miracle in our lives. You know that's exactly what they were thinking. It's exactly what we would be thinking if we had something incurable and we knew someone was coming to town that could help. We would be there in line saying, help, help. And that's exactly what these ten individuals did. They stood at a distance, though. They respected that. But they needed him. They had nowhere else to turn. There was no other hope for them in human eyes they were desperate. They didn't receive government assistance or government housing or food from a food bank. There were no soup kitchens back then. There was no one taking care of their medical care. They were alone. And if they did not have family that gave them food, they couldn't get a job anywhere to earn a living. They were truly on their own dependent 100% upon the good, kind graciousness of others. Simply to eat. We don't live like that, do we? We don't. But they did. They met Jesus, stood at a distance, and verse 13 tells us that they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us, or have mercy on us. They acknowledge who he is, Jesus. They acknowledge that he is master, that there is a relationship that they have to him where they are servants and he is a master. Now, did they understand all the ramifications of calling him master, Lord of lords and king of kings? They may not have. They may have heard some things about his teaching and about how he presented himself as the son of God, the sacrifice, the promise of Abraham, but it wasn't fully understood and known like we do today. But they recognized in this man, through all the things that they had heard, 
He is special. He's special. And so they cry out to him with the only thing they can say, have pity on us. Have mercy on us. Take care of us. They're looking for him to heal them. That's what they want. And so they move into the next verse, and Jesus says in verse 14, when he saw them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. See, in the Old Testament, they had lots of rules and regulations, good ones for that day and age, about how you overcame leprosy. Because sometimes it went away. And so when someone contracted leprosy, which in the Old Testament simply means a skin condition, okay, let's get that clear. It's not, you know, your hands and fingers are falling off kind of leprosy. Any kind of skin condition that was incurable fell under this category of leprosy. Today we have very specific categories for those type of diseases, but leprosy was just a general category, and sometimes it wasn't the full-blown leprosy that, that we've identified as Hansen's disease, which is the, the part that kind of decays the flesh. Uh, sometimes it was just a skin condition. Regardless, it was under this umbrella called leprosy. And sometimes that individual, through the working of their own immune system, overcame those skin blemishes and they cleared up. So what do you do to a person who is no longer infectious, whose skin is cleared up, who no longer has leprosy? Well, they went to the priests. And God outlines a certain amount of things that that individual had to do as far as cleansing, uh, taking care of themselves, presenting themselves uh, at first, and then seven days later to make sure that it did indeed all clear up. So they had all these regulations, and so Jesus says, you got to go to the priests. Now they're probably thinking, okay, um, yeah, I know that's what I'm going to have to do, but I have leprosy, so I can't go to the priest. It has to be cleared up. But we're told in this story that as they were going to the priest, they just heard him and they went. Their leprosy was cleansed. How that happened, I've got no idea. How, I mean, it had to be an immediate effect because they noticed, oh, I'm clean. I, I'm, I'm, I'm whole again. I'm not hurting. I'm not patchy. I'm not... Whatever it is, in that moment when Jesus said, go, they were healed. Now, he didn't have any magic words, uh, you know, thou shalt be healed, or, or waved any kind of thing. He just simply commanded them, go and see the priests. Because that was the next step after you were healed. So they walked, all ten of them, in that first step of faith, going, I'm going to obey. I'm going to obey him. And as they took that first step, they were cleansed. It's not as dramatic in the verse. And as they went, they were cleansed. You would think there'd be this fanfare that, that all of a sudden everyone would see these lights from heaven shining on them and, and all the disease vanishing or some big clap of thunder. Boom, it's over. Or, or some kind of fanfare, but it's not. It's very simple. Take the step towards the priest, you're healed. Could not have been an easier solution to what they were dealing with. No complicated regiment of antibiotics or visiting specialist. It was take a step towards the priest, like I commanded you. And they did, and they were healed. That is amazing. There is so much in that one little unsung verse that is impactful in the Christian life. How it can apply to us in an everyday situation. Whatever we're struggling with, when Jesus says, step and go, we step and go. 
And it doesn't have to be a giant step. It doesn't have to be an amazing step and leap of faith. It's obedience. It's an understanding and acknowledgement that we commune and have a relationship with the Master. And we serve under Him, for Him. And when He says step, we step. We don't understand how it happens or why it happens or, or where it happens. He can take care of all those details. He asks us to step forward. And they did. Verse 15 gives us the twist of the story. One of them, unnamed, no idea who it is, but one of those ten, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. So obviously, as they're walking forward, they're noticing, I'm whole. And they're noticing each other. You're whole. You no longer have those spots and that disease. I'm whole. You're whole. And his reaction is not to run to the priest and say, let me back in society. His reaction is to run back to the miracle worker, the one who gave him that freedom from that disease, and fall down and worship him in a loud voice, praising God. Do you think at that moment his thanks meter was half or full? I think his thanks meter was off the charts. It was at 11, which is an amazing... I mean, you only go to 10, but he was at 11, if anyone gets that reference. I'll tell you afterwards. But this man was ecstatic. And his first response was to praise God. He knew that God was at work here because only God is the great physician. He had some type of understanding and knowledge already of the greatness of God and the power of God because he acknowledged God. And he realized that this person, Jesus Christ, the Master, is uniquely qualified to do something miraculous. And he did it for me. And he was driven to his knees in thanksgiving and saying, praise God who gave me wholeness again. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And then the kicker. And he was a Samaritan. I, I don't know if we in our culture, even in our culture here in Pueblo, fully understand and grasp the cultural faux pas that was happening here. I mean I, I mean, I don't know exactly how I can even relate a story that encompasses how truly unusual this was. Maybe it would be like a Denver Broncos fan and a Raiders fan just hanging out and loving each other and giving each other a hug. Maybe that's the case. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to, I've tried to think for several weeks, how do I communicate this vast difference? I don't know. They spoke the same language. They had the same history. But they never, never talked to each other. They never even glanced toward each other. A good Israelite would never be caught dead in Samaria, and a good Samaritan would never be caught in Israel. There was such a divide, such hatred between them. Israelites did not even think a Samaritan could be saved. If they came to a saving faith, they still had to stay out of Israel. They were never part of the community. 
But this man, who had leprosy, on the border between two rival, warring countries, acknowledged that Jesus Christ, who was Jewish, had saved him. And Luke points out, the guy was a Samaritan. Really unusual, really strange, really out of character. Mind-blowing to the people who read it when it was originally written, but to us, we don't grasp the great divide between these two cultures. And I mean, I, I mean, maybe back in the 50s through the 80s, you could say, you know, Americans and Russians getting together, or during World War II, uh, the Allies and the Axis getting together. I, I mean, even those don't rival the competition and hatred between these two groups. But it was a Samaritan who came back. And Jesus asked this rhetorical question. Uh, were not all ten cleansed? I mean, there were ten of you shouting, Lord, Master, have pity on us. There were ten of you, right? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? So perhaps out of these ten individuals that had leprosy, it kind of indicates that this guy that came back might have been the only Samaritan out of the bunch. He may have been the only foreigner there. The other nine, may be assumed, were Jews. They were Israelites. They were Jesus' countrymen. And it was not his countrymen that came back and thanked him, but a foreigner, completely ostracized from that culture and society, came back and worshipped. Notice how God describes, or how Jesus describes this praise in verse 18. We cannot go through this too quickly. Has no one returned to give praise to God? Jesus knows full well exactly what he's doing here in this miracle. He is displaying God's power through him. Through Jesus Christ, God is displaying his power, and he, and he identifies Who's being praised here? It's God. God is being praised here. In my work, Jesus says, I am being praised. I am being praised. I am being acknowledged as the one who's brought this, and I am God. He continues in verse 19. Then he said to him, Jesus says to this man, rise and go, because he's down on the ground in the dirt worshiping, praising God. Rise and go, your faith has made you well. Now all ten of those men were healed. All ten of those men took that step towards the priest and obeyed Jesus' command to go. But just one came back and that one person's faith was acknowledged. A Samaritan, a foreigner, completely out of contact with the Israelites, came back and worshipped. Turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Because in Ephesians chapter 3, we see Paul praying about that relationship with God. Because Jesus pretty much acknowledges this guy's faith made him well. This guy's faith was integral, was key to this entire thing. The acknowledgement and the praise. A relationship. Because he has to have faith. He believes, he knows and acknowledges the relationship. And so in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14 and following, 
Paul has a prayer in which he talks about this relationship. And I want us to hear what this relationship is like, God and you. Because this is the relationship we're talking about, you and God. Paul says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, I pray, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. God is the Father of us all. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So Paul says, I pray immensely. I kneel before God with focused thoughts that the riches of this relationship are made known to you, that you understand the depth of this inner relationship that the Spirit of God has with you, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that faith and your heart have a relationship with Christ, that it's known, that you understand that, that you rejoice in it, that you are excited about it, that you look forward to it, that you are dependent upon it, that you love it. Love that relationship. He says, and I pray for you that being rooted and established in love, that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, all of God's children, to grasp how wide, how long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I think Paul is looking for words at that point to describe how intimately and huge at the same time, intimate and huge, God's love is for you in Christ. And in fact, I think Paul would say it is measureless. It has no boundary. You see, we set up boundaries with love. We set up boundaries all the time. And we usually use love as a currency. You do this, I'll love it. You don't do this, I won't. And we use love as a currency that we freely give, but we'll also take it back right away when we don't like it. And so we use love as a currency. God doesn't use love as a currency with us. He has opened up the storehouse of heaven and said, this is the fullness of my love. And you go, how, how big is your love? And he goes, you can't measure it. There is no measurement that is worthy to describe Christ's love for you. Never, never, as one of God's children, never, ever, never, ever doubt for a second that God does not care about you or love you. It is so easy to just simply assume that God's love is like our human love, a currency. But it isn't. It is not a currency. It is an act. It is an action. As well as an emotion and a feeling, it is an action. And I don't mean to be contrite, but you know the depth of God's love when you take one glance at the empty cross. He's still not hanging up there. He's down from it, resurrected. We don't worship a dying or dead Savior still hanging on a tree. We worship a resurrected, living Christ Messiah. His love for you 
is so intimate and huge that death could not contain him. And he loves you like that every single day. Even those days when you don't acknowledge him. Even those days when you think he's deserted you. Even those days you think you're at the bottom of the ocean. Even those days when you think you are completely ignored by the world. Even those days when you think if I was gone, no one would care. God does. Personally, immensely, and fully. He continues and says, uh, and that we would know that this love that surpasses knowledge Paul acknowledges, I can't even grasp all of it. This love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And then Paul, in this explanation of Christ's love for you, which is a, a boundless, measureless type of love, a love that even knowledge cannot grasp, which means you will never figure it out. You will always be amazed at the love of Christ. You will never figure it out. You will never go, I got it. All right, what's next? This is the fullness of the relationship that you have with God for eternity, that he would display to you day in and day out in eternity, that his love for you is boundless, measureless, complete, full, and you cannot grasp it because you will always ask that question, why me? Why love me? Because if I'm being honest with you, God, there is a lot of unlovable in me. A lot of unlovable actions, a lot of unlovable attitudes, a lot of unlovable hopes and dreams, a lot that's unlovable because we're used to a currency. And God says it doesn't matter what you have or don't have. What matters is I have declared my love for you by sending my son to die and be raised again. In that thought, there's only one thing that Paul can do to close that chapter. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, because there's a lot we can ask and a lot we can imagine, according to his power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church, us, his people, and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. In theology, those last two verses are called a doxology, which is just a fancy word for saying praising God. It's a praise to God. And Paul ends that thought of God's love with just praising Him. Just praising Him. It is at that point, Paul's thank meter is absolutely full, and there's only thing, one thing he can do. Praise God. Praise God. When was the last time in your life recently you got to the point when you thought about your relationship with Christ that all you could do is praise Him? All I can do is praise you, God. I can't come up with excuses and wants and desires. I just am undone before your mad, majestic love. I praise you. I praise you. I praise you. It's been a while for me. It's been a while, and maybe it's been a while for you. That's why this series is meant for us, to get our thanks completely full again. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, 
We want to thank you for taking us out of a desperate state of need, of not having a relationship, and putting us in Christ. And as we celebrate your table this morning, and as the men come forward, we ask that you would make our hearts ready to experience the depth and width and breadth and height and majesty of your love. For in each step we take towards the table, you took towards the cross. And for every moment that we think of you, you have for eternity thought of us. Help us, Father, not to live a moment doubting your love for us. Your love for us is great, so great that your Son died and rose again for our sins. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. Amen, yes. So she can get a little 